Welcome to the podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business based in London and podcasting and broadcasting globally through these podcasts and through EITV on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is John Lloyd of the Financial Times. Uh, I'm going to introduce Julia in a minute and say a few words about what you're going to see this evening. It's a competition, a contest between the blogotariat and the, com the commentariat. And Julia asked me to give a few well-chosen and balanced words to start this, so I'm so well-balanced. I hate blogs. Uh, I think anybody, anyone who has spent their life in newspapers, it would be unfair to expect anything else of us. When we look around the world, we see newspapers dying, or at least gravely ill. In France, with the uh, practically all the national press is now is now next to the graveyard. In this country, the Indy, which was the boldest start for the last 20, 30 years, may well not survive the year. And incredibly enough, in the United States, the New York Times is now propped up by the millions or billions of Carlos Slim, a Mexican entrepreneur. So death of papers is one thing one can lay at the door, not so much of the blog bloggers, but of the internet. I read bloggers. I read all the bloggers who are here um, and enjoy them immensely. I have a bias, I must say, towards Mick Fealty, whose blog Slugger O'Toole records what's happening in Northern Ireland, because I started in journalism in Northern Ireland. And Mick's blog, one has to admit it, is a great piece of work. But what we in newspapers cannot see, uh, and I think no one can see, indeed, no one knows what's going to happen when newspapers, if they do, pull out of the space they've occupied for the last uh, at least 200 years. Not, I think, just because we're conservative and have spent all our life in newspapers, but because no one can say what, what business plan, what business plan follows from the death of newspapers. And above all, <coughs> no one can say what kind of power is going to be mobilized. Newspapers are power, and you have to have power in order to hold power to account. And for the, all the glories of the net and the glories of the blogs, one can't yet see that power being mobilized by the hundreds and millions of flowers that bloom over the, over the net. So I remain resentful, hateful, <laughs> and still a reader of uh, the people who are here. And I'll hand over to I'm really Julia's warm-up act. Julia needs no warming up and no introduction. So over to her. Hello. Well, thank you very much, John. John did what we might call the pre-introduction because he also speaks with the hat of the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, and they, alongside with Edelman and Total Politics and Editorial Intelligence, are bringing you this event, which is being podcast on iTunes, broadcast on EITV, and perhaps more relevant to today's discussion, continuously blogged on screens, I'm told. And if you are sufficiently bored that you don't want to watch and listen and want to blog as well, then I think it's EI Blogger is the hashtag. Twitter. If you want to twit, then. Tweet. 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 <laughs> it's a good start, isn't it? That's how much I know. So 1990s, <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, 
here we are to discuss whether or not there really is an entirely adversarial relationship between what we call the blogatariat and what we call the commentariat. If you really want to pit the two against each other, you can log on at any point after today's event to the comment awards, commentawards.com and place your nominations for just that, an awards to mark the best of comment, commissioning and commentary and not tweets but blogs. But tonight we're joined by really some of the heavyweights in print and online to slug it out or mutually agree to disagree. And I'm going to introduce them briefly and their remarks are going to be the best introduction to their positions. We're going to start with Anne Spackman. Anne Spackman is now the comment editor of the Times, but she was the editor-in-chief of Times Online under her stewardship, uh, the Times Site One Electronic Newspaper of the Year last year. She presides over arguably the most highly regarded comment pages in the UK. If you were a Martian from outer space and you wanted to read an important piece of comment, or at least if you were the Prime Minister and you wanted to tell us all about Digital Britain, you would choose the Times to put that comment piece in. So we're going to begin with, with Anne, and each speaker will speak for about three, four minutes, and then you will get your say. So I will introduce them briefly just before they speak. Anne. Thank you very much indeed. Do we stand up? No, yeah, I would sit. We can sit. Good. Good. No, no, I'd much rather sit down. That's great. I'm very short. All <laughs> oh, right, I'm really am that short. Okay. No, that was a mistake. First big failing. Okay. Um, right. Uh, just to start off um, with something that John said, uh, John Lloyd said about um, the commercial underpinning of what we do. I wasn't going to kick off with this. But if we've discovered that the business model for newspaper is looking, looking rickety, there is no business model for the journalism we do online. And I say that as somebody who used to be responsible for this area of our business. And it has fallen away. The online advertising revenue has fallen away so much more quickly than the newspaper revenue on our site. So I think that search for a commercial model is a really big issue because without money, none of us will be sending people off to Tehran and Baghdad and all the other things that we do in journalism. So um, I'm just throwing that one out as a sort of um, as a ball to be played by somebody else. Uh, major thoughts on this area. I think this year has been the most fascinating year for the relationship between blogs and commenters and newspapers. And that's been shown chiefly in two events. The first is the Damien McBride affair. I don't know if Paul Staines, um, Guido Fawkes, is here tonight. He has declined um, to attend. Okay. Um, well, <laughs> his ears will be burning with some praise here. Um, when he uh, when he found out the the key to his um, his Damien McBride story, it was it was partly because he stands like most bloggers outside of that sort of enclosed world of, of power. Um, he has a freedom, he has a voice that is very different because of his position. I think online, he found a very very good story, um, and that's one of the great strengths of a blogger who is working extremely hard in a, a deep niche like he is, and like many of the people sitting here are. But in order to make an impact with that story, he had to come to newspapers. And it was one of the profound shocks to me when I went across from newspapers to online was to discover the power of newspapers. Newspapers and television and radio have an enormous impact. And the corollary to that was to understand that when you're online and you've got very good content, 
The hardest thing is getting it in front of an audience, and that is why we all spend an awful lot of money optimising our content for Google, but it doesn't work with certain kinds of stories. So that, that, that relationship between the two of one person finding a great story and using the impact of the papers to put it into the public domain, I think gives us quite a lot of clues as to how the relationship between um, bloggers and uh, writers on newspapers will evolve. The other thing to say is, of course, that they're often the same people now. Lots of people on newspapers have blogs. Lots of people who were bloggers are now becoming parts of newspapers. And I do think that that relationship is more symbiotic and that up to a point it's just been a sort of phony war that we've been fighting. I don't see one as a threat to the other. That's not a view shared by all my colleagues on The Times or anywhere else. Um, the other big affair, I think, that showed us where we're going was the expenses scandal. The expenses scandal showed the public appetite for transparency, the need to actually tell stories as they are, um, to be lucid, to be honest, uh, but not to write in uh, a language which has evolved over years so that those people who are in the know understand everything you mean and those outside understand only a part of it. And I think that, um, that bloggers have developed a tone, the tone of the web, the tone of Facebook, which is a very peer-to-peer -peer sort of tone. It doesn't say, here we are, we live in a fortress, and every now and again we land on a drawbridge and we give you, the, you know, all of our wisdom and then we pull it up again and then we talk to ourselves and we do it again tomorrow. Bloggers just have no walls. They are out there, the web is open, people talk to each other, everybody's view can count and that's a wonderfully liberating, wonderfully liberating feeling. And I think that kind of spirit will inculcate much more of newspaper journalism as well. Uh, the two things will come together just as they're having to do in Parliament where we at the moment have a great battle for speaker. Um, the word transparency will be everywhere, we'll be looking for more of it in every form of journalism and I think that's why the influence of the bloggers will come much more into mainstream media. Thank you. Well, Martin Bright is a blogger now for spectator.co.uk which is interesting given that on his CV he says that he spent most of his career working for liberal newspapers. He was even education editor of The Observer at one point, which is a pretty liberal kind of a job, isn't it? So, uh, you now blog and blog quite often about the Labour Party. You've also broadcast a lot. What gets you the most reaction? Your blogs, your broadcasts? Um. Broadcast always gets the most reaction. Broadcast is incredibly powerful in terms of actually making change. Um, the, the program that I made about Ken Livingstone, for instance, was uh, far more influential than any other piece of journalism I've ever done. That said, uh, comparing the influence of my writing for the New Statesman to my blog for The Spectator, it's certainly the case that Downing Street cares a lot more about what I write for The Spectator than it ever did what I wrote for The New Statesman. Even though it's just a small blog with a relatively small readership, they're obsessed with The Spectator and the right-wing press. Tell us more about the blogatariat versus the commentariat. Do people react more to your blogs than a piece of comment that you might write and I won't interrupt you anymore? <laughs> um, it's very hard to tell. I mean, the, the great thing about blogging, of course, is you get the immediate reaction from the, uh, from the people commenting on it. The great thing, and it's also the most upsetting and kind of unpleasant thing about blogging. So it, it's very hard to tell what the reaction is. I mean, when you talk to politicians, they will always tell you that all they really care about is the editorial columns, the leader columns first, and then the, the big hard-hitting columnists second. But I mean, it's very difficult to know whether to believe them or not. 
you want to say a few things as well? I do. Say away. Do you want me to stand up too? Yeah? Yeah. <coughs> okay. Stand up. Rather put it to my, to my shame by the noteless presentation uh, of Anne there, but uh, I'm afraid I'm going to use a few notes. Um, I was going to say that I thought that the blogatariat and the commentariat were kind of part of the same unpleasant, poisonous, uh, kind of lazy, self-serving journalism that has replaced real reporting, but I realise we are at an editorial intelligence uh, gathering, so I probably shouldn't say that. Um, in general terms, I guess I don't really like commentary or blogging very much, which possibly explains why I'm not very good at either, but um, the, I do think that the first is, is that comment is, generally speaking, complacent, lazy, smug, um, and that the second is kind of... Um, I had to make notes about this, obviously, uh, is vicious, unsophisticated kind of white noise. I think, generally speaking, that's the case. Um, but um, I decided that I wouldn't say that, um, because when I thought about it, it wasn't really fair to say that one was a kind of parasitical flip side of the other. Um, actually, writing thoughtfully about contemporary events as they happen is extremely difficult to do. Um, I know it because I've tried to do both, because uh, I'm a blogger and was a commentator. And it really is hard. Um, uh, I mean, it's like, I guess, kind of football or opera. You know, it, most people who do both of those things are really mediocre at it. And I think that's the case up to the very highest level of commentary for kind of commentary and blogging as well. Um, but what I would say is that every now and again you do find a great piece of commentary that stays with you for a lifetime. Uh, I mean, David Ronovich here, I have, is probably the only commentator I've ever written to to congratulate on a column, which is um, saying something. I think, for instance, that um, to give you an example, I think Peter Beaumont's piece at the weekend on Iran was an extremely sophisticated, uh, extremely sophisticated piece of commentary that completely change the way I think about what's going on in, in Iran at the moment. And every now and again, you get a piece like that, just like you get a kind of great goal or a great opera performance every now and again. Um, and that's because although it's something like Peter's piece was written relatively quickly, it was based on a kind of vast reserve of knowledge. And I've yet to read, I have to say, I've yet to read a great classic blog post. I just haven't, haven't seen it yet. I think it's getting close, strangely enough, with, with Twitter. Every now and again, you do read a really fantastic tweet. And one of the things that I think is challenging the kind of dominance of, of blogging is, is tweeting, because uh, it allows you to kind of collect favourites, and these are little gems of, of language, I think. Um, but just to finish, one thing I do worry about when we talk about this kind of war between the blogatariat and the commentariat is what it is replacing. So it's going to go back to my original thought. I think there is a danger that with the, the, the death of the commercial model that Anne was talking about, that we will lose great investigative journalism, uh, which is not catered for, really, in, in either of these spheres. Um, and, I mean, for that reason, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to see that today uh, Stephen Gray, a fine investigative reporter, has launched uh, a thing called the Investigations Fund to try and kickstart investigative journalism in this country again. And I think you know, th that's the way 
forward for some for some great journalism and perhaps the uh, the commentariat and the and the blogatariat should should look to that as an example Thank you. well the precedent has been set Mick quite how you stand up and tweet at the same time now Mick Fealty I'm a blogger I don't have any legs I just sit at my desk all day that's that that's just unfair and inhuman treatment of your uh, your bloggers here <coughs> Mick Fealty started seven years ago something he describes as a great social experiment which is the Slugger O'Toole website which has played a hugely influential role in the Northern Ireland process and he has also blogged for mainstream newspapers such as the Daily Telegraph and Comment is Free. So Mick, everyone's saying it's not really <coughs> adversarial, it's about the big issues. Where are you on this? Okay, well I thought everybody was being far too conciliatory so far so I thought I'd, I'd try and kind of ramp things up a little bit. The angle I'm going to take here is basically that the bloggers, anybody who's got a memory four or five or six years deep will understand just what contempt bloggers were held in five or six years ago and because bloggers have effectively won the argument um, they're, they're speaking to us nicely they're inviting us onto platforms and suddenly um, the beast from without is now the, the slightly tamer beast uh, within but my line of argument is less that this is about two sets of people who have completely different views of the world or, or whatever. It really goes back to Marshall McLuhan's argument that the medium is the message. And he was writing at a time when television was really the first great technological disruption. And it's interesting to hear Martin say that it still holds sway. I think that's true. Um, the, the, if you look at the Obama campaign and the, uh, and, the, and the 2004 campaign in the States, what all that money-raising effort online went to was in buying um, advertising time on TV. That said, I think the second um, great disruption is the internet. It's, and bloggers were simply the pathfinders, the people who got there first. So we've won. Why? Because one, we've changed the behaviour of the blogatariat. Many commentators now are becoming bloggers. David's run a blog for quite some, I don't know if you're still doing it, but you were quite early on, got involved in it. Martin Paul Waugh at the Evening Standard. Clive Crook has got f a pretty big profile uh, um, writing for the FT, but online in the States where he's based. Robert Peston at the BBC. Dan Hannan at the Telegraph. Um, and going back to John's thing, the truth is it isn't bloggers that have ripped the, the revenue out of the big news gathering things. It's Google effectively has done that. Um, they've cut the amount of money that's available for big journalism, but online bloggers have started a party that has proved irresistible to most of the commentariat that, you know, five or six years ago were doing most of their work uh, in the paper, not online. Spreadability is the new currency, and to do that you need a personal audience as a blogger, which is allows you to be pre-connected to a much larger community and, 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 and fundamentally it is a different way of communicating. It's peer-to-peer, -peer. it's not simply speaking into a kind of a black box and, and out there. What are the differences? Well there's more of us than there are of them. Um, on the whole, I have to admit they are better writers. Um, but there are many more of us than there are of them and our networks are absolutely vast. Um, our sources 
and this is crucial, I think, our sources are not always inside the, the golden circle. I, I did a, a panel discussion with um, uh, Paul Staines, Guido Fox, at City University recently, and he, he pointed out that his biggest story to date, and this was before, uh, before the big, big story, I think, um, came from uh, somebody who works inside Westminster but earns something like 15 grand. So we're getting stories from the little people, not the big people that the commentators uh, talk to. And I think that's critical for people to, to take on board if, if they're to understand exactly the scale of this revolution. Um, um, and generally speaking, the people we talk to aren't necessarily always the best behaved witnesses. They don't, uh, you know, actually they hate convention very often because it's holding them back uh, and not serving their purposes. Uh, the way the larger, the largest of us, I think Ian is a perfect uh, case in point. Guido too, slugger to a certain extent. Uh, we tend to be entrepreneurial, social entrepreneurs, or just straightforward. And certainly in the case of Paul Staines, uh, making a lot of money out of his blog and out of the advertising company uh, that he that he um, syndicates around the place. Um, and we're not obliged to fit in with someone else's brand. In fact. Bloggers are brand builders, and the new brand online is not about being attached to the FT, the Times, the Independent, or the Guardian, or the Telegraph. It's, it's us speaking directly from the gut. Um, the commentariat tend to earn more on, on whole, um, although Guido recently at that particular thing said he couldn't take the pay cut of coming in-house in one of the big papers. Um, that wouldn't be the case for me, and I suspect um, Ian, Ian earns a lot, uh, a lot of his uh, money from the conventional media. I tend to do it through consultancy and, and kind of hiring uh, myself out. Um, uh, but generally speaking, bloggers don't need to earn money from what they do. They tend to be doctors, lawyers, policemen, uh, um, you know, basically people from all walks of life, inside and outside the, the elite. Um, and I think one of, one of, we kind of connect with people um, outside the kind of Westminster village. And I think Ian and um, Tim Montgomery at, uh, at, at Conservative Home and that, net, that Tory Network Roots revolution have tapped into a national feeling that lies way beyond the metropolitan consensuses that, that, that decide what's successful and what's, what's a failure. And in fact, it was the online bloggers who were probably some of the earliest backers of the Cameron Project, way before anybody in the national press was prepared to confess any kind of any kind of um, love for, for that project. <laughs> and despite what you may have heard, we are generally more trusted than, than, than the commentariat, not because we're more accurate. We get it wrong just as often, maybe more often than people in mainstream. But, and this is crucial, it seems to me, because we're per perceived to be outside the power loop. We're not connected, we're not embedded in the way that many journalists are. And on the whole, we converse, we talk to our readers, we're challengeable, and we bring with us, we are harbingers, not, we're not the creators of that cultural change, but we are har harbingers of a cultural change that generally our readers are, are enervated by and, and excited by. Um, and you know that fits with a cultural change that basically, since the amount of data, raw data, information and opinion online is absolutely vast, readers themselves are becoming their own navigators and that feeds into that kind of pre-connected 
uh, community that I was talking for. We are moving effectively away from the trust me, I'm an expert, or I work for the Guardian um, paradigm to a show me, demonstrate to me exactly what is going on here paradigm. And times are changing. Um, Slugger, for those of you, and I imagine the vast majority of people, apart from John Lloyd and uh, perhaps a few on the panel here, uh, um, are not regular readers of Slugger O'Toole. But um, in a small space, Northern Ireland, 1.7 million people, according to Comres, 96% of all the MLAs in Stormont were regular readers of Slugger O'Toole. And Mark Devonport, who is the BBC Northern Ireland's version of Nick uh, Robinson, was getting 92% on his, uh, on his, on his reading. Um, so uh, uh, what I was going to say was, uh, in the real world, people want the inside track. And we're able to give it to them um, in a sometimes in real t in real time. Our audiences may be smaller, but in aggregate terms, we're talking to the, the elite, not the broadcast, not not the, that massive broadcast audience. And finally, in the end, these are technolo technologies that are driving change changes in the way that things are done. So it's not a competition as such. So although I started out by saying bloggers are winning, it's actually the technology that's changing us. We simply change quicker than the people that are uh, supposedly on the inside. Journalism is, to use a technological term, rebooting. And uh, the, you know, the latest news or insight is as likely to come from somebody on Twitter as it is from uh, somebody like Ian or myself blogging on a big blog. As Jay Rosen, an academic at New York University put it, um, we're all participants in the news cycle now, simply culling and editing and finding out what's actually going on, which is the classic mission, I think, of, of every journalist who ever put pen to paper. Um, uh, with, well, maybe not everyone, but um, <coughs> some of us, and um, you know, in the end, there's an intelligent commons out there that is ready and willing to cut out the middleman, um, and that includes that possibly includes bloggers in the long run, just as well as members of the commentariat. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, Ian Dale manages to command the airwaves and a lot of newspaper columns almost continuously and yet of course he has made his name being probably the best known blogger and certainly the most uh, mainstream blogger in the UK. Um, he also has a blog in addition to Ian Dale's diary called West Ham Till I Die. Those of us that are football free zones don't particularly go to that but I'm told that lots of people who support West Ham do. You've even forged a sort of weird friendship with Alistair Campbell over your footballness, haven't you, on your blogging about it? But Clar anyway. Claret and Blue United, you see. There you go. Don't overshare, <coughs> but I know that that goes on. Um, Ian, you are very well placed also as the publisher of Total Politics to comment on this. Where do you stand? Um, <laughs> well, I am, going to, I am going to stand. Um, well, the fact that I see the screen's gone blank now, but the fact that the hashtag for this meeting was EI blogger and not EI comment, frankly, says it all, doesn't it? The, the blogging must have, uh, must have won. Um, 
John said at the beginning that newspapers were dying. They're not dying because of blogs or even because of the internet. They're dying because none of them actually know where they're going. They're throwing huge amounts of money at various things, including the internet, but they've got no end game. There's no strategy. They don't actually know what's at the end of the road, and yet they feel because all their competitors are throwing money at it, they're throwing money at it. Um, John said he hates blogs. Well, at times I hate newspapers, and I particularly hate newspapers when they try and kill off blogs, which is exactly what Anne's paper has done to a brilliant blogger called Nightjack uh, last week, and they should be thoroughly ashamed of it. And you know, the reason that they did it was because they could. There was no journalistic reason for uh, trying to expose this man who was shining a light into the police force, which most of us haven't got a clue what the police do on a day-to-day -day basis, and that blogger was shining a light into that particular world, and now they don't. I look forward to reading uh, the next Philip Webster exclusive in the Times, where he says, sources close to the Prime Minister told me, I'd like to know who those anonymous sources are, thank, thank you, as they've now said that you, you can no longer operate in anonymity. And this is from a newspaper that thought that was a story, but didn't think parliamentary expenses was a story, and turned down uh, the, t the story that the Telegraph took on. Thought I'd give you a bit of controversy to start with, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, the fact of the matter is that two years ago, many people thought that Mick and I and our ilk were very sad people who sat in our bedrooms in our stripy pyjamas because we were failed, either failed journalists or wannabe journalists. Um, oh, how th times change. Where now most newspapers, if their journalists won't volunteer to blog, they're actually instructing many of their journalists to blog. And many of them are actually very, very good at it. And Mick mentioned Paul War. I would add Ben Brogan to that on The Telegraph. People who've become essential reading for most of us in Westminster, where they can write things on their blogs, which they would never in a million years get, get the space to write about in their newspapers. But I think what's also happened over the last few years is that bloggers have been able to hold the traditional commentariat to account for some of the rubbish that from time to time they write. And of course that gets an instant reaction from the commentariat who don't like it because they're not used to being held to account in this way. Speak to Polly Toynbee or Jackie Ashley on The Guardian about what they think of how they are held to account on, on particular blogs where some of their columns are taken apart line by line and some of the assertions that they make. And when Jackie Ashley one week says how wonderful Gordon Brown is and that he bestrides the political stage like a colossus and then the next week he must go because because he's a walking disaster, and thinks that somehow she, she she's, should be paid a thousand pounds a column or whatever she gets to write this rubbish. I mean, at least be consistent in, in your views. Um, that there is a, an issue in that blogging is not often considered. It's a very instantaneous medium where if something happens, my readers want to know what I think about it within five minutes, if, if possible, and then complain that if, if I don't tell them. I mean, today, Boris's deputy, Ian Clement, resigned over this credit cards thing. Get a string of emails saying, why haven't you mentioned this? Uh, because there's a speaker election on, and I'm covering that, actually, thank you very much. But people have an insatiable demand now for comment, whether it's from the traditional media or on blogs. And of course, when you do comment uh, quickly, you do make mistakes, and uh, you've got to hold your hands up when you do that. And you can misinterpret something, you can misunderstand something. Whereas if you're writing a column, at, le at least you know you know your columns on a particular day, and you you can uh, plan accordingly. Um, I wrote a column for nearly two years on the, on the Daily Telegraph and I, I found it a real challenge to do because it's not the kind of writing that I'm used to. And I found that 
that the one column that I wrote that I just bashed off in 20 minutes was the best column I ever wrote because it was what I was, how I was used to writing, whereas I thought I should be copying all these sort of big names who no doubt spent hours and hours crafting their words. And yet, actually, in the end, I found that I, I should have been myself. Um, are we trusted? I'm not sure I totally agree with Mick on that. I think that people do trust big names that they've heard of. I think bloggers have got a long way to go to earn trust. But in the end, it's our readers that hold us accountable. And the fact that, I don't know what your traffic has been like over the last four months, my readership's doubled over the last four months. People don't come to you unless they trust you as a source or they trust what you're saying. Finally, I think the internet has had a huge impact on not just uh, traditional uh, written media, but also traditional broadcast media. Um, when I found out the BBC weren't doing a, a normal election results programme after the elections, um, I decided to do one on an internet radio station. And we did nine hours on the Friday and then another eight hours on the uh, Sunday. We were getting results far quicker than the BBC were and putting them out there far quicker because we had people using Twitter, Facebook, blogs to get all our, of our information. We didn't have reporters around the country. We had citizen journalists who were feeding in the information. And it, it was just a breath of fresh air to be able to put all of this information out there without any kind of filter. Yes, we had to make judgments, but it, and it worked. And we had 10,000 people over the two days listening to this. Now, by BBC standards, a fraction. But you ask any one of those what they got out of the BBC and what they got from us. We had 10 people working on this programme, which I suspect the BBC would have had 200. And for anybody interested in political res election results, um, I know where they'd go next time. Thank you. Right, well, the gauntlet was well and truly thrown down to the Times, and it's fortunate, therefore, that the last speaker on the panel is David Aronovich. David Aronovich, whose column appears every Tuesday in the Times, and he's just been writing tomorrow's column all day today, has been uh, an essential reading on a number of other newspapers. But uh, he is now absolutely required reading in the Times. He's also a broadcaster and a writer. His book about conspiracy theories, voodoo uh, um, histories, the role of the conspiracy in modern history has been very well received. David, uh, are you going to begin with a rebuttal? Um, well, it's tempting, isn't it? I mean, it's always tempting to... I mean, in a sense, Ian is being provocative. Um, and, of course, one of the things in the kind of versus... Uh, notion is the idea of the sort of you know the bulls locking horns about who has the largest accoutrements and so on and who um, and I mean you know part of me is in kind of inclined to meet the challenge simply out of kind of old lang syne and and testosterone because I'm adrenalized after writing a column but actually I think on the whole I'm going to refuse Ian except to say this firstly I was glad to hear uh, the description of Guido Fawkes as occupying a deep niche. All I can say is it's nothing like deep enough. Um, <laughs> and one should also recognise that for some of us, the form of accountability that Ian's talked about, say the form of accountability I get from uh, Guido Fawkes, is to be called a c 25 times in one comment thread. Now, I think that may be the problem more than the problem of somebody criticising what you have to say. Uh, I actually have a complete blog attached simply to the business of criticising me. Uh, and every now and again, they actually say some quite funny things. That kind of accountability, I think most of us are big enough to deal with and we have to deal with. I think it's been called a 
that gets you down after a while. Um, and incidentally, one of the unlooked for things which we should think about quite a lot, particularly on political blogs, is just how few women ever seem to attach themselves to them, write them or comment on them. Uh, and they are significantly more male-only zones than I think politics is becoming on most of our major newspapers, and we could try and account for, for that. Um, but let me just say that I absolutely love uh, what the new media has created, the possibilities that it's created for me and for everybody else, and I don't reject it at all. Uh, on Saturday night, um, at the Borders Festival up in, uh, up in Scotland, I was sitting there with Ian Rankin and Hardeep Singh Kohli, Twittering, we were tweeting actually on Hardeep's Twitter. Uh, one of the problems, incidentally, with people who do this is they've always got a bloody machine in their hand. They never actually speak to you face to face anymore. <laughs> but nevertheless, we're twittering. You know, he said, "What you know? What's a good idea?" I said, "You know, strange couples. Let's have you know, like Lionel and Tony Blair." And we put that in. And before we knew where we were, we were getting hundreds of this stuff back. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't give them what I thought was my end favourite, which was Andrew and Dave Mackay as a, a as a. a as a perfect couple. Um, but it was just a kind of example of the sort of thing that you can do. We couldn't even imagine two years ago that there would be a form of 140 characters in which people would do something like that. And we had absolutely no sense of how it might apply itself into a situation like Iran. Uh, the point that I'm making is fairly obvious, which is, uh, in some senses, the blogotariat versus the commentariat suggests a kind of settled contention in which we know where everybody is and where everybody's going. I think the one thing that we can absolutely say without certain, with a certainty is the commentariat in some form or other will be with us for the next 25 years. We have absolute, I think, but we have absolutely no idea what the blogotariat will look like in 25 years. We simply don't have any idea. It will have metamorphosed well beyond what it is now, and we can almost not predict it. Now, one of the reasons why the blogotariat in its present form gets such a lift is actually because we, in the written journalism and broadcast journalism, give it a lift. Um, let's give an example. I was amazed when watching through one of Labour's recent crises on, News 20, on, uh, on BBC News 24, uh, and it was a crisis about the Labour Party and internal Labour politics, to see Ian Dale cropping up all the time as a blogger, because Ian knows nothing about the Labour Party whatsoever, less than nothing. Uh, whenever he, no, but whenever you say anything about Ian, you're wrong. Um, but, but what was interesting, and that's fine, because you wouldn't expect him to be right. When he's on the Tory party, I would expect a sort of surer grasp, and every now and again, you get it. Um, but, but what was interesting was people were saying, who have we got? I mean, because the News 24 and 24-hour news is a great sucker-in of people. And the novelty thing was to have the blogotariat. You represent that novelty thing. They put you there, and just as soon as they put you there, Ian, they will spit you out again when they find... when they when they find the next thing. Uh, so there is that kind of love of novelty. But the thing that strikes me, I mean, in my work, it's, I find it uh, uh, genuinely, uh, genuinely that there are synergies there. I use bloggers, and my favourite bloggers, quite a bit. I use them as sources of information I can't otherwise get. And it's exactly as Mick has said, that there is a, kind of, there is a form of democratisation there. It is an unreliable democratisation, but democratisation usually is unreliable. In the other sense, I don't really know what I'm getting, and I don't really know who's talking to me, and I know that if they get it badly wrong, no one's going to fire them. I'm grateful, incidentally, about the information about uh, how much Guido earns, because it means it is worth suing him, which is not what my, uh, which is not what my lawyers thought. Um, <laughs> but but now, I found, now I've found that, that that's wrong. 
we can kind of consider it because one of the disciplines that we as written journalists are under continuously, I have to tell you, is the prospect of being sued. I simply cannot say the things that some of my colleagues here on the panel say, I can't say them. They would be taken out. Anne would whip them out. The lawyers would get them. We wouldn't, and they would sue. If some of the things that were said to me on Guido Fawkes were said about people who wrote anonymously under Guido Fawkes, they would sue the Times and we would lose a lot of money. We can't do it. It's not, in that sense, a level playing field. Now, this used to bother me, and I used to row about it. I used to row, especially at our Comment Central section, because they kept on linking off to Guido Fawkes. And then I saw the penny suddenly dropped. There's no point in my worrying about it. There is absolutely no point in my going on about it. This form of incivility is essentially a part of the new democracy, and there's very little I can do about it. Hopefully, more congenial areas will, will, will arise, which people will also use, where such a lack of civility is not so general, and we can wait until then. But in the round, there's kind of immense possibilities. I mean, for instance, on the Iranian elections, I went first to 538 in order to discover what their analysis and their breakdown of the possibility of an Iranian fraud was. Because they were looking at all kinds of sources that other written journalists weren't going to be able to do in the time frame that they were going to be able to do it. And I found that extraordinarily useful. Now, I, of course, I have to very carefully evaluate uh, what that is um, uh, and what it means. But that evaluation is not, I have to say, I'm afraid to say, a total distinction between commentariat and blogatariat. I tried to work out for myself the question, are the best commentators better than the best bloggers? And are the worst commentators worse than the worst bloggers? Um, I'm going to pass on the first question, uh, but at least with the worst commentators, they don't have a kind of follower of terrible commenters who come like a tail up behind them, uh, and so on. Mind you, actually, nor do the worst bloggers, actually. They don't have any comments at all. There's sort of incredible forms of vanity publishing, but in that sense, that's what democracy is about. But I'll give you... I mean, I was looking at this thing, which you've all been given. I'll give you an idea of the relative values by, by pointing out that though I am at number nine of top ten web influential commentators, what web influential means, as it says, is referred to across all social media platforms, blogs and microblogs, social networks and photo image video sharing sites. I can see why that's going to be a problem for me. Um, <laughs> if you compare it with the links with the people opposite, with the people opposite on top ten UK political blogs, I, I come up next to SNP tactical voting. <laughs> Now, I think that gives you some idea of the relative importance. No, I'm, you know, I'm not an immodest man, it is true. But I do think, actually, I hold more significance than SNP tactical voting. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, maybe Scottish independence will prove me wrong. Um, the final point to be made, of course, is the point about money. On Wednesday, Martin, Mick, Ian, on Wednesday, I could have gone to the Times political meeting. Now, in that political meeting would have been Peter Riddle, Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, uh, Phil Webster, Sam Coates, uh, Anne herself, Matthew Paris, and so on. I can't go because The Times is sending me to interview Amartya Sen. Neither of those things could have happened to you two. So, we've had... Thank you very much. We've had... Anne's point that everybody's view counts in this new blogatariat, commentariat world. We've had Mix, David and Goliath illustration and perhaps the fact that Ian's ubiquitous and much remarked on blog only, only 
has, in essence, 150,000 downloads, viewers a month, which is very influential but small compared to newspapers, so that gives you some context. It's actually unique users. Unique users. We have Martin's observation about the vicious white noise, and I think we've shown that there can be perfectly vicious verbals as well as the white noise. And we've had the argument that there is either synergy or there's basically separation between the two. I would like to build on the C word that's much bandied about in policy terms at the moment to say that I think you could say there are three C words about this debate before we open it to the floor. One is, is continuity, that comment, uh, and particularly the tweets and the blogs, are continuous. Uh, it, when you put a comment piece to bed like David's piece, that's kind of it until the comments start coming back in online. But in this world, assisted by technology, people can reply all the time. That brings us on to the second C word, which is conversation. Everybody is now answering back. Uh, it's not that there are three people in the marriage, as Princess, the late Princess Diana memorably said. There are three relationships. There's the, there's the media uh, producer, there is the uh, recipient of that media, and then there is the public that is continuously adding their voice. <coughs> and of course, that voice is often now controversial, and I think David articulated this perhaps most clearly. Uh, there is a controversial element to the way that blogs comment posts and in particular the replies. Certainly, um, I had a book published earlier this year. I gave up looking at the comments posted on the one blog that was very relevant to the book because they were just sort of mean and nasty and spiteful. And I thought that's not really a very pleasant way to spend one's time. But so the etiquette is, question... In what way is that different to the comments on the Guardian website? <coughs> I'm not saying that they are, but the idea, that the etiquette question, I think, is one that we should come on to. So, it's now your turn to have your view. You need to state your name, rank and serial number when the microphone comes your way. You need to keep your comments reasonably brief. Think blog, not op-ed piece. Person in the front row, please. Think tweet. Think tweet. Think twit. Um, Mark Thompson, I, I do a blog called Mark Reckons. Um, I managed to find uh, an apparent link between the safety of uh, an MP's seat um, and the likelihood of them having been involved in the expenses scandal, something that no one else had picked up on. And I published it on my blog, and it actually got quite a lot of coverage. Polly Toynbee, for example, linked to it. Um, and I got a lot of, of visitors. And this is just a bloke sitting in his bedroom. That's something that 10, 20 years ago just wouldn't have been possible. Um, I think some of the, the comments that some of the people earlier were making about um, how people go to the mainstream media yeah, they do. And, you know, as was talked about with Guido, he went to the news of the world in order to publish his, uh, his big scoop. Um, but that's now. In five years, ten years, who knows? Uh, there's a whole generation of people coming through now whose first recourse is to go online and do this stuff. Just because the older people will still go to the newspapers, that's not always going to be the case. Um, uh, the comment about no classic blog posts. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm trying to think that there are a few that kind of spring to mind, but I'll, I'll send you some, Martin, because there are definitely some blog posts I've seen that are as good as, if not better, than some of the best comment pieces I've ever seen. Maybe you're just not looking in the right places. Um, and just one last thing about the lack of civility. Again, 
some of the blogs do have a lack of civility um, but that's not the case with most of them I would say in my experience quite a lot of them are very polite very thought-provoking both blog posts and comments in the comment threads below so you know I think maybe you need to look a little bit more broadly at the blogs that you're looking at rather than maybe Guido uh, I understand there can be quite a lot of vituperative comments in his thread but he's not the only blogger out there there are lots of us okay thank you any more comments Jenny Russell from The Guardian. Um, I think I'm slightly unusual in that I write for The Guardian comment pages and I really enjoy the blog responses, which is not a popular view um, amongst the commenters, because I find that even when they're enormously rude, which they often are, they're almost always intelligent and very witty. And even if you don't agree with them, um, they're fantastic reading material. Um, the thing that I find difficult is that you have to spend many hours trawling through them and then you start piling up all the ones that you think you've got to respond to and then you've got about 20 and then you get to sort of comment 240 and you think, actually, they're having a private conversation now. They don't really want me to join in. And you're not quite sure what the etiquette is. You do list responses to 20 people or you just give up and go back to sleep. But it's certainly in contrast to when I've written for other papers like the Sunday Times. Um, it's a great newspaper to write for because it's got a fantastic circulation, but it has nothing like the online community coming back to it. So you don't feel you're getting that kind of response. And I, for one, think it would be really disappointing as a journalist to go back to the days when you didn't get responses like that. I think it's fantastic. And I also think it enlivens your journalism, gives you ideas for other things that you're going to write later. Well, Ian, you've put commentary cent uh, the, the, the comments back sort of centre stage. I mean, you often invite your readers to really set the tone. Yeah, I mean, comments, are, it's a really difficult thing for any blog, particularly if, if you have a lot of readers, because you can't control them. And now if you switch comment moderation on, you're stifling the debate because you, have to, you can only approve them when you've got time to do it. So you can't get a live debate going. And I sort of switch from time to time, and I've, I haven't got moderation on at the moment, so Christ alone knows what's going on on my blog while we're here tonight. Um, and generally, people on my blog will behave. You're, I mean, I try to ban swearing, but you'll get the old person do it. Sometimes I delete the comments and sometimes I don't. Um, I, I just had a text message from Guido Fawkes, who is not with us, but with us in spirit, who wishes to say, I never swear on my blog, Aronovich confusing the comments with the editorial. Um, it, it is almost impossible, unless you have the resources that a national newspaper has, to filter out these ones. I know the Telegraph have a huge team. You probably have a huge team there, sort of taking them out. I mean, how can an individual running a blog do that? I, I tear my hair out sometimes at the way some of the threads develop. But on the other hand, you can get some absolutely fantastic debates going. So do you want to stifle all of the threads um, just because some people are going to misbehave? It, it's a real dilemma for every blogger. But it's the lawyers who establish that. We, ne we used to have to spend the most extraordinary amount of money on moderating comments on Times Online. We still spend a lot of money doing this. We don't do it because we want to stifle debate. We don't do it because we like wasting money on things that are not journalism. We do it because if we don't, we get sued. Yeah. And the two worlds will start to come together much more like this. And I think that uh, as part of the, the learning process, as I say, I think this complete kind of phony war um, about the idea that you know, you've got them versus us, um, it's just a nonsense. You've got a position now where as newspaper bloggers and all other bloggers who are actually out there actively blogging, most of whom are reporting 
reporting. They're not commentators. The commentators are commentators. The reason that they write these immaculate pieces, the reason why every PR wants to have their chief executive on the pages of a newspaper and not online. You offer them online, they think it's a slap in the face most of the time. The reason they want to be there is because they are big, chunky, impactful, considered pieces. That's not what the net is for. The net is brilliant for live reporting. And some of the best blog posts, I would say, um, I mean, if I look at our most successful blog, which is um, Danny Finkelstein's Comment Central, which has an enormous readership, the best blogs are often when he just puts in a post saying, I've just heard this. What do you think of that? Or have you noticed? And it's, it's that wonderful live debate. That is a very different thing from writing a considered piece which people will read and feel has untangled a very knotty problem. But with this, this issue of the lawyers, we don't choose to be the victims of people suing us. It's very, very expensive and it wastes a lot of our time. But as bloggers become more part of the mainstream, the same laws that apply to whatever platform we're on in print will apply to other platforms too. And at the moment, there's no way that re really a lawyer can honestly say whether or not the, the, law, the, the, um, the arm of the law will come down here or here or here because it's too untried. In newspapers, we know where people will sue us because we have plenty of experience of it. But online, we don't know that yet, but it will come to have that kind of impact uh, and it's not something that any of us welcome but that is just the reality. Martin, can I just ask Martin and then you Mick, what is your view about the fact that this new transparency is giving rise to the claim that really the, the, the old anonymity is going to end and is that going to have an impact on the anonymous posting of comments and indeed the anonymous uh, think identity of bloggers? <laughs> I mean, the, the, this is going to change at the very moment that a major newspaper or indeed a, 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 a prominent blog is sued. I mean, I think there is, there is going to come a point where some of the comments, even the moderated comments on Comment is Free, uh, become so unpleasant that, and it was certainly the case on, on the New Statesman, that we didn't have the time to moderate the comments to the extent that would allow you to protect yourself from being sued. I and then does pre-moderate. They certainly didn't use to when I was running it. They don't pre-moderate their comments and comments. If you do, you they pre-moderate, but they certainly do post-moderation. Yeah. Um, they they, they trawl through it, and the minute someone complains, they also moderate them. Mostly it comes from journalists rather than politicians. Um, it's, it's a very difficult thing. And, and um, with, with Slugger, it's nearly always been in terms of what somebody said in the comments. So now I've worked very hard on Slugger to, to, to value that comment zone because for me, it, the conversation that gets stimulated is absolutely a crucial part of it. And we, if, you, if you look up the term, put it into Google, uh, play the ball and not the man, which is an old soccer thing. Um, I've got that right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you get it wrong, it's chaos. Um, and that is basically to, to, to say to people, there's one rule on this site, and that is that you, you play a matter of substance. And if you, I mean, you can imagine what passions are like in Northern Ireland. I mean, it makes Westminster look like um, Christmas time. But um, so, so right from the very beginning, we try to culture that. But nine times out of 10, when I, when I get a, th a threat, and sometimes I've had it from a text message from a journalist I know, sometimes it comes through on Facebook from a journalist I know, um, and, and, um, and there's only one time, one time I was successfully sued. And guess why? I quoted a journalist verbatim. The journalist newspaper was 
sued. I was brought in because to repeat a libel is to, is mm. to, is to have a libel. And I was absolutely determined to see that claim right through to the court because I thought it was a fraudulent thing. The newspaper in question decided to settle because they didn't want to go to the hassle. They basically thought if they closed it on a low sum, it would be, it would be functional. So some of the, I think, I'm very keenly aware of this because I'm trying to run a civil, a civil space in a very, a civil discussion space in a very uncivil uh, uh, arena of, of politics. But I think a lot of the trouble that newspapers have is because partly they're just a little bit too cautious and they won't take on some of the people who, in my, my experience, often are ch chancing their arm. Martin, should every comment poster have the right, unmediated, to reply, even if they're saying, you know, unpleasant things, untrue things? Why should that space online be completely free? It, when it isn't, with a commissioning editor, David can't write whatever he likes in the Times. He's got to discuss it. It's got do to you, be... Do you mean the actual blogger themselves, or do you mean the comments that appear I after I mean the them? comments that appear afterwards and the blog posts. Well, I mean, I think the equivalent thing is, is the letters page, isn't it? That as, a, as, a, as a journalist writing uh, in a newspaper, you are protected from the Green Ink Brigade by your, by your letters page editor. Whereas, whereas when you're, you're writing on comment is free, nobody protects you at all. And you are, you, it's just open season and people can just call you what they like. Um, and there is, I mean, there's a huge problem actually that, that Mick has raised here, um, which is the problem of reposting. I mean, there is, there is, and bloggers will eventually have to come to terms with this. Because as Mick says, if you repost a libel, then you are, you are liable for that libel. Um, and what is beginning to happen is that retrospectively, newspapers are starting to pull down articles that, are, that they decide are risky, haven't even necessarily been the subject of, uh, a, of a libel case, but are just seen by their lawyers as potentially risky. In good faith, bloggers have reposted those articles which then disappear from the site and they are left high and dry and I think you will see um, you will see increasing cases of of bloggers being sued because newspapers are not prepared to take on extremely rich individuals I think I think any blogger who thinks that they're immune from the law is a fool um, but most bloggers I know are keenly aware of that and they're keenly aware of it before they I mean you might find this bizarre David since your experience has been rather more um, confrontational with the bloggers but, but but generally speaking you can't stay in business for long if you're going to get if you're going to get dragged into you know a three okay. year, year long law case. So. Okay we're going to go out again to the floor somebody at the back. Hi I'm Justine Roberts from mumsnet.com and I speak as an organisation of many many thousands of bloggers really and we have been sued um, but I just wanted to come back to Anne's point that the laws of moderation on the internet are set um, by the lawyers. Um, in fact, we spend a good part of every day wondering about um, whether we should moderate, whether we should get involved, whether we should really pull down things and uh, interfere with freedom of speech. Very little of that is about the lawyers, and a lot of it is about tone, about offensiveness, about 
what we're prepared to accept and what we're not. And uh, I think it's quite interesting that if you compare the mum's net discussions, which are feisty and can, as uh, Julia, you will know, can be quite personal, they're nothing like comment is free in terms of their just in, in their vitriol gone mad. Uh, and we tend to think that's because the members themselves have agreed a culture and a tone that people sign up to. But it, it is very, very hard to stick with your principles of freedom of speech and to sit there and look at incredibly distasteful, rude, offensive comments uh, which might be make every political bone in your body crawl, um, but realise that you have to actually let this happen because it's the two-way conversation that educates people and actually allows um, people to learn stuff. Um, um, thank you. I, I think um, I don't think there is a conflict over freedom of speech. When we were uh, setting up the current Times Online site a couple of years ago, we had to decide what was going to be the policy because the site at that point took very few comments. This is you know three, two and a half, three years ago, and um, and and we wanted to make it as democratic as possible and open it up. And you have to decide you know, what are you going to accept, where do you draw the line? And in the end, what we found was that the law provides a very good line. If it's illegal. If it's illegal because it's racist, it's obscene, any of those things, then we're not <coughs> going to have it on the site. If it's robust, unpleasant in other ways that we don't agree with it, well, that's the game. We, you know, that people are allowed to speak. But I don't think there is actually a, a conflict between those things. I think the law provides a very good boundary. Okay, Suzanne Moore from the Mail on Sunday. There's a fantasy going on here that um, because you're talking about political blogs, that you're an alternative to the to the establishment. I don't see that at all. Uh, you know, I don't know why, how you are, or, or why you think you are. And um, the other thing is, why don't women do it? It's, there's this thing called the work-life balance. Um, and if you can't say something in 1,500 words, why not? <laughs> Ian, I said you'd have to respond to Suzanne, and indeed you do. Um, well, I, I, I don't view myself as an alternative to anything. Um, as David's already said, I mean... I appeared on News 24 way before I ever started blogging. I, I was writing for newspapers before I ever started blogging. So um, I don't view myself as some sort of separate entity from uh, mainstream media at all. And I think people who set themselves up as such are probably riding for a fall, just like my voice is at the moment. Can I just respond to one yeah. thing on the fact that uh, about women? 85% of my readers are men. And I don't know why that is. That figure doesn't change year on year. And I don't think I write a particularly aggressive blog. I don't think I write a macho blog. That's just the way it is. And, but you can say that's the same for political participation in this country as well. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised by it. I am horrified by it because I, I genuinely don't understand why. Do you know, I sat next to Alistair Campbell once when somebody said to him, tell me, Alistair, why is it that people sometimes find that you're really rude and aggressive? And he said, oh, I, just, I just really don't know. I said, oh, I can help you. I've been on the receiving end of one of those 10 o'clock bollockings, as they used to be known, and it's really unpleasant. So I have now sat next to Ian while he said that the Times doesn't think expenses is a story. Jackie Ashley, funny, she's a woman, really rubbish columnist, let's like rock. I, I wonder why I women don't that. read your blog. I, I wonder what that. the tone is. I, I, I'm completely Confused so, by I'm not, so I'm not allowed to <laughs> criticise women. Okay, interesting viewpoint. It's just a tone. It was a choice. It's just interesting. It was, it was a classic joke when we were watching all the expenses thing go through the number of MPs who blamed their wives for the things they'd spent their money on. There are heads nogging in this audience. There are other people yes. who think this too. <laughs> Anne McElvoy and then Nico McDonald. Hi, it's uh, Anne McElvoy from 
the, the standard. I just wonder whether the divide around which this debate is based, whether there's actually quite a good reason for it. It might be porous, but there might be a good reason. And I'd just like to ask uh, some of the panel's views on that. And uh, my logic is, is as follows, that it, well, people read blogs and comment in newspapers for actually rather different reasons. And you may not like uh, some of the commentators, of, for instance, something that uh, you, you name-checked therein, but actually they do have a kind of authority. And in a way, that's why that's why you get, hang on a minute, that's why, why you get work, worked up about them. But you want them to have authority. You also want them to have thought, had longer to think about what they write. And there's this thing, every time I've been involved in a debate you know, with bloggers, they always want to do down your knowledge. And they always want to say, oh, you know, you're all so specialist and you all, you all know too many high up people at Westminster. Like, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with knowledge? What's wrong with specialism? And one of the things I do enjoy about the blogosphere is it's very different. It's very quick. It's very reactive. You said yourself, you, you're there on pressurizing you to have a view on something you actually didn't have a view on. And the difference is that if you're a newspaper columnist, you can go away and say to it, well, hold on, I'm going to need a day to sort of work on this. Usually, or I'll get, you know, I'll try and get the information as quickly as possible. But you're not under a ridiculous pressure to shout off about something that you may not uh, know something about. And particularly at the moment in the press now, when we do see that serious journalism is thriving, it's the one good thing to come out of this sort of ghastly situation that we're all in economically. We do know that from our post bag that uh, serious journalism is taken more seriously. Like, what is wrong with keeping that divide, even if some people want to be on both sides of it? Can I just have a quick response to that? Because I don't actually disagree with much of what, what you said. I think it is great that there are specialists. And I think one of the tragedies about the fact that newspapers are having huge budget cuts is the decline of investigative journalism. And that's not something that, that bloggers individually can ever replace. So I, I, don't, I don't really disagree with what you're saying. Yes, I picked on Polly Toynbee and Jackie Ashley, people I actually like and get on with, but I do think that they're, they're very inconsistent in some of the things that they write sometimes, just as I probably am too, actually. But Martin, where are you on this, the blogatariat versus what Guido Fawkes memorably calls the dead tree press? Yeah, um, I try not to quote Guido, really, but the the... I mean, I think it's, it's a difference in tone. I think they are part of the same thing. I think it is, it is a continuum. I don't think they are particularly different. In, in, uh, blogging is a form of, of commentary. I don't, I don't really see them as particularly different. It's just a different form in a different, a different medium. I, I, I think that if you want to... I mean, if you want to read a blog, you read a blog. And if you want to read a newspaper commentary piece, you, you read a newspaper commentary piece. And sometimes newspaper commentary pieces appear in people's blogs. I mean, I, I think it's, it's a, a, an artificial distinction, although obviously I appreciate this is a very important debate, but I think it's, I think it's largely artificial. Can uh, I just have a <coughs> David Dimbleby-esque show of hands moment at this point? Who here reads two or more blogs a day as a matter of course? Okay, and who doesn't? so lovely. Okay, what is it? What's that number? It's a bit even Stevens, isn't it? All right, sorry about that. Right, and okay. Who would say they are, they turn more to paper-based commentary rather than the blogs? Who reads print commentary first and foremost? Including with online comment. Okay, so the majority is the print, which backs up the scission research that David 
was referring to. So we're going to have a couple more points. One from net expert Nico McDonald. Nico. <coughs> I wonder what the gross is. Um, I, I wonder why we talk about bloggers. When else have we fetishized uh, what someone does by the technology they use it? And I'd suggest that perhaps it's because blogs were the first easy to use content management system, that's CMS. Uh, and ease of use is maybe something that us in the media sector could learn more about. And I was interested in Mick's comment that technology was driving change. And I would argue it's slightly the other way around. I think there's a cynicism in British society about politics, which has been building for some time. And I think that's driven people to uh, away from the mainstream media, if you like. And I think there's a desire, if you like, for some kind of self-actualization almost in people commenting and writing a lot online. And I think uh, we need to ask why when so many more people have access to comment, there's so little meaningful political change. Because you know, in past eras, say the 18th century, there was tremendous political change when Paine and others were writing. And I wonder what that says about the nature of the changes we're taking place. I don't think it's about us becoming more political or more empowered. I think there's something else going on there that we ought to be a bit more sanguine about. Comment over there, and then we'll, if you want a comment, put your hands up, because then it's going to be finishing. Neil. Okay, um, Neil Stewart from uh, Policy Review TV and other bits. Um, to go back to the economics and what the economic model is, um, I mean, I'm quite struck that uh, I mean, we're seeing, I think we're all in the hands of the advertising agencies and others who are running around trying to figure out where they spend their money. Um, and they're moving away from print because it's the old question. They know that, uh, you know, half their advertising spend is worthless, but they don't know which half. The online media appears to offer, through cookies and more detailed analysis, some kind of assurance that it can tell you who's looking. Um, I'm very struck by what Ian says about his 160,000 unique um, users a month. It seems to me that that's quite valuable in uh, ABC one readers, you might be careful not to dilute it with too many West Ham fans in case you begin to lose your advertising, but of course that's not the kind of commercial calculations that uh, bloggers and others might make. I'm interested that Tim Montgomery this morning posted a piece that looked an awful like a commentariat piece. It was a long piece, and it seems to me that actually some of the journalism is just merging and at the same time it's looking uh, for economic models. In my experience a lot of the most interesting stuff in this area is happening in what would be the trade journal areas and um, some of the things that were mentioned earlier, not just things like Nightjack but some of the really interesting stuff that's happening in medicine and in some of the professional areas where they're managing to uh, you know, network about problems and things that would otherwise be hidden and would never reach the interest of some of the uh, national newspapers. And finally, just about blogging and twittering and others, we're all enjoying the spectacle in Iran at the moment of the power of this kind of media. But the only time that it's been used in the UK through mobile phones and uh, emails, etc., was in the petrol strikes and things in the early, uh, about what must be nearly seven, eight years ago, and we did a seminar afterwards with the police and other people looking at this. It was very interesting how what came out of it was a description of the electronic mob. And it was a mob that behaved remarkably like some of the mobs that used to go through the city when the first free sheets managed to spread rumours and subvert the old forms of communications. 
So I think it's interesting that, and it used to start in the coffee houses, so it's interesting that Spectator calls their blog space, some of it coffee house. Two more points and then to use the parlance, an open thread from the panel to finish with. Ian, you wanted a quick point there on the advertising, the, didn't you? are very nervous about advertising on blogs and um, I mean I probably make 12 to 15 thousand pounds a year directly in advertising a lot of the other things I do are indirectly related to the blog but if you consider that the new statesman circulation is what 20,000 25,000 spectators 55 60,000 I think um, sorry how much the circulation of the new states might don't. Well, you would say that, Martin, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, regardless, so if I have 160,000, you'd think I ought to be coining it in with advertising. I'm not, because advertisers don't really get blogs so yet, and they're, they're particularly nervous of blogs that they consider to be politically partisan. Okay. Uh, Stefan Stern from the EFT. I, I wanted to come back to something Martin said right at the beginning, actually, about reporting. And uh, this morning, for example, someone from the BBC Westminster team told us that one of the important things to remember about the election of a new speaker <coughs> was that this job comes with a very generous salary and pension attached, uh, which may well be true, but that struck me as something that, that sort of, uh, if you like, irreverent tone, is something that sits much happier, more happily on a blog than in what you might think would be a, a factual account of an important development today. And similarly, last week on the blog of a quality broadsheet, um, a completely unsubstantiated rumour was reported as fact uh, about number 10 and I, again I don't think sorry to be pompous about this but I don't think that mainstream media I think the mainstream media in, re in its reporting has to be very careful not to uh, copy the blogs that. in the sense of bloggers yeah. have more fun and we want a, a piece of it and can you comment on that is are the blogs unintentionally dumbing down on the newspapers no, I, think, I, I, I don't think there's any dumbing down going on. I think um, um, one of the things that um, Nico was pointing out about, um, about bloggers being about a platform, I think bloggers have brought us something much more special than that. I think they've pricked a lot of pomposity, and I think they have come in um, you know, as, as Slugger has, and um, although you're obviously an embed in the Northern Irish Parliament, but they've come in, uh, you know, they've come in, they aren't embedded, they are outside, they do have a freshness of voice and a, and a, new, and a sort of new tone, and I think that's an entirely beneficial thing. There's absolutely nothing that's negative. I certainly don't think it's dumbing down, um, but I think that one of the reasons it's come through is because we are seeing this synergy uh, between the different forms of journalism. I think reporting rumours, um, reporting rumours, it's a tricky business that. Can you say, there is a rumour that there's such and such, we can't corroborate this yet. You set a thread going effectively. I think you can do that better online than you can in a newspaper where things exist in their constant state. Um, and if you can't get hold of somebody to come back to you, you're sitting there with your room, you're much more exposed in that way. But I think that, um, that online journalism has brought that real freshness of voice. And I think that's an entirely positive thing for newspaper brands, whether it's on their website or on paper. Thank you. Two more points, and then we're going to wrap up. And you are off to comment on the speaker, aren't you, on News 24? Sorry, it's between John Burko and Sir George Young, is that right? Yeah. Right. David Seymour. David Seymour, yes. Uh, I wondered if someone on the panel could help me with this um, on the decision form. On the um, top ten of commentators, although there's clearly a leaning to the right, there's a vague sort of balance. There is some non-right presence. But on the political blogs uh, top ten, it's sort of exclusively, almost exclusively right-wing. Why is that? 
Can we have Paul Miller from Cision answer that? Because Paul has done the research. Can we get a mic for a phone quickly to Paul Miller? Well, I can tell you about the maths, but I wouldn't want to. Um, I really wouldn't want to comment on the audiences for those blogs, or indeed the kind of the kind of links that they gather, which is really key to that particular calculation. There, um, I, I guess there's, and it does seem to me. I mean, and I think it's probably on back for the panel. It does seem to me that there is definitely a right-wing slang, certainly among the most popular bloggers in the UK political blogging scene. I mean, I, I don't think that is the top ten blogs. I mean, six of those I don't think would be in most people's top ten. <coughs> but you would still probably have a preponderance of writer-centre blogs, no matter how you did the top ten. There's all sorts of reasons. I mean, the fact that it's easier to blog in opposition and, uh, I, I, I mean, yeah, right David, of, right do you of have a view about what, what's your, is, is that a charitable view of why more right-wing no, people think, blog? No, I think, I think that must be right. I mean, at the moment, the right-wing view is the insurgent view. Blogs, to a certain extent, lend themselves, or some blogs, to insurgency. Um, that's one of their values. And I would imagine, I could be entirely wrong, but if, as we expect, the uh, Conservatives win the next election, then three or four years after that I would expect most of the successful blogs either to be rebellious internal conservative blogs, this is political blogs we're talking about, or insurgent blogs from the left. That's, that, would, that would be my guess. Can I, can I just also make a distinction also with sort of blogs like Mix as well, which also have, uh, there are, if you like, a kind of variety of specialist blogs where an area gets the attention that it won't really get from anybody else because of the interests of the blogger. And in those particular areas, what you get is a form of specialist journalism which may or may not be replicated anywhere else in the journalistic world. And that is one of the incredible sort of flexibilities of the blogging system. Uh, and I think we should kind of add that to the list of characteristics uh, that blogging has. that characterises comment. I mean, the whole point about comment is that it is well, expresses views that are entirely well, the passions okay, okay. of the commentator. Suppose, suppose, for instance, that I have become interested in... Uh, I'm wanting to do something about Northern Ireland in a hurry. As a commentator, I haven't looked at Northern Ireland seriously maybe for the last six months. That's the truth of it, maybe in passing. Where am I going to... And then something happens, and I want to get a good bead on what's going on, and I want to find out who's making, if you like, a good digest of the best commentary, and also who's well-informed. I'm going to go to Sagaro Tool. I mean, it's an obvious thing to do. I'm going to find out things there that I will find difficult. Now, maybe I could trawl the Belfast Telegraph website or something like that. I'm told not um, immediately. But the fact is, it makes it, it, this is what makes most sense. And there are other situations uh, as well in which that's true. Um, yeah, maybe, actually, maybe. But the blog is a, is a lot more productive in that sense, in, in that you're not simply going to get my view on it, you're going to get what people are actually thinking, where the conversations are going. I first tumbled how valuable blogs were to journalists when um, the second summer I'd set Slugger up, there were too many people just to leave the blog on its own for two weeks while I went off to the wilds of Donegal, had a, you know, a, an internet-free fortnight. So I, I, I recruited six people from right across the political spectrum in Northern Ireland and one of them turned out to be uh, quite a high profile columnist who then confessed to me after having a great time for two weeks and upsetting all my, my, you know, my, my, my readers that um, actually he reads Slugger all the time for story ideas. So the idea that somehow this is a one-way relationship where we're simply kind of 
feeding off the, 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 the hind teat of the, the MSM is wrong. The other thing I'd like to say, and I just want to quote Adriana, who's in the audience and um, one of the earliest political bloggers in, in the UK, and she said on Twitter, there's a strange sense of deja vu here, very much of the debate between journalists and bloggers. It was the same back in 2003, 2004, but reality's moved on. I, I, I know what she's referring to. It's a, um, a, um, a, a thing that we both were at at LSE about four years ago. And I think what's happening to the debate here is we're getting stuck in generic stereotypes of who the other one is. And the truth is, bloggers are as bloggers do. And each blog has its own intrinsic value. Um, Ian's, I think, the, it has convened a massive kind of netroots Tory thing. And that is a thing in and of itself. It's not to be compared lazily with, with other people who are doing other things. A quick thank you to Ian, who's going. There's one more point over here while he's leaving, but we'll have a Indeed. quick on the move. Thank you to Ian Dale. Point. It's a sh I'm Nina DeRoy, business presenter at Sky News. It's a shame Ian's gone because my question might have best been answered by him, but I'll be brief. Um, I just wanted to ask quickly uh, about the commercial viability of uh, the blogatariat 20, 30 years from here on. Obviously, I'm one of these people who I've embraced the, um, the blogging world myself, writing the city blog there, but realistically speaking, I'm wondering 20, 30 years from here where we're going to end up where we have blog barons in the same way as we have people who own a number of the publications around and what's your world? view well i think on the commercial side it's easy to be blown away with numbers online um, i'm not sure whether ian said he has 150,000 uniques a month or a week a month i think it's a month it's a month if the spectator is selling and i don't know these figures but on his figures if it's selling 55,000 copies a week then per week it probably has at least 150,000 readers and a month it has 600,000 readers and every national newspaper website has over 20 million uniques a month and still that's not bringing lots of value and the reason it's not bringing not lots of value is because it is not a recognised community of people. In that sense I'd argue that if you had something like Ian's but it was much bigger then you might argue that you know who your audience is and I think it'll be quite interesting how this drives the debate about anonymity because Jeff Jarvis, who is uh, one of the most Im important sort of leading lights in this whole world, um, thinks that anonymity online is disappearing. And he thinks that's happening because of Facebook. Because effectively, you try and be anonymous on Facebook, you don't exist. You have no friends. So uh, the normality always was you hide behind some, um, some you know, Charlie... Um, sort of, uh, what's the word, uh, you know, kind of Mickey Mouse name, but, um, but now you don't. You're not going to do that so much anymore. But until you've got groups of people who can be identified, you know, until Marks and Spencer know that by doing a particular thing on a particular range of blogs, they're going to hit this number of a particular kind of person, they simply aren't transferring in that way. So you can talk about these numbers and they can be big, but, and they're massive, but if you compare the individual bloggers with, say, the huge newspaper websites, and even we pale compared with the BBC all of us. So you can have these huge numbers and still not deliver at the mo moment, really, I mean, I'm not a, you know, on the commercial side, but I've had to live with this. You cannot deliver those kinds of returns. And I'm not, as I say at the beginning, not pretending that we haven't seen the money go away from newspapers, but we haven't seen it go to content-rich sites online either. Um, and I think it was, um, I can't remember if it was Martin, was it you who said, the money's gone, gone to Google. 
So, influence. So, and parting shot. There are no illusions that that, that that it's difficult to make money as a blogger. And and as I said in my own presentation at the beginning, Ian makes his money uh, other ways. So do I uh, as a consultant. So it, the money's there, but it the money doesn't have to be there for the blogosphere and the internet to really ex exert some serious influence. And as I said, I mean, the amount of conversations I've had with journalists who say. Uh, first sight we go to in the morning, switch on Slugger O2, find out what's being said. I, I was told by uh, one of the, the, uh, the editors of the Belfast paper saying, if we get to lunchtime and we've got white space, we go straight to Slugger to find out what, what, how we're going to write the next story. That's the utility of it. And for me, it's the utility, not the value in terms of pounds, shillings. God, I'm giving away my age now. Um, it's a, so I'm that's the cut, crucial I'm thing. I'm going to cut you short now because we're going to end bang on 8.30 and Edelman's hospitality will continue over real conversation as opposed to mediated. Don't, we, don't so blog and tweet, for God's sake. Can I, can I just, uh, therefore, I mean, Ian's gone, just say that there is a very strong rebuttal to his point about Nightjack, which we're not going to make, but there is a very strong rebuttal to be made. And it'll be partially in the area that Anne hinted at, which is the question about what will be happening as a consequence to anonymity. And incidentally, I have to say by extension, I think sooner or later it will be happening to anonymity in stories from political sources, and about bloody time too. Yeah. Martin, on that note, what do you have to say about sources? I'm all for content labelling myself. I think you should say this source is anonymous, but we've also referenced X number of press releases, Y number of uh, contested facts. I mean, let's have complete open sourcing. What do you think? I hope it happens organically. I mean, I hope it does change because newspapers need to stop the anonymity that exists at the moment. I, I do worry. I mean, it is changing via Facebook, via Twitter, but at the moment it, is, it isn't changing fast enough. I mean, just looking at the, the posts that are coming through here, it's not entirely explained, actually, where they're coming from. Uh, they are largely anonymous. You can recognise that one of them, in fact, was from Guido Fawkes, because he repeated what he texted to, uh, uh, texted to um, Ian. But, um, you know, you've got up there... Look, I mean, this is the sort of thing that's coming through, and I think it's a real problem. Um, uh, I'd like to see Ian or Mick punch Aronovich. Aronovich is a c um, And uh, also, you know, perhaps even more shockingly, David is the most funny and insightful speaker. But, I mean, it's just, it's just, but, but, yeah, it, well, it may as well be. It's utterly meaningless and it's not helpful. Can I just end by saying I personally don't mind the C word being used, particularly in the contents, but it's entirely possible that many people in this audience have objected to it being used probably eight or nine times. So respect and indeed apology to those people listening who do object to the use of the C word, but it's been used, I would think we'll all agree, in an illustrative fashion. <laughs> and on that note, um, on that note of consensus, I thank you all for coming. I thank Edelman, the Reuters Institute, Total Politics. I thank Anne, Ian, Mick, Martin and David and yourselves. Thank you very much.